This episode of the Ottawa Entrepreneurs Podcast is brought to you by Extension Marketing. They act as your virtual marketing department, designing and implementing cost-effective marketing strategies that grow your business. For a free workshop, email them at workshop at extensionmarketing.com. Now here's your host, Pat Whalen. On this episode of the podcast, I meet with Jason Burke. He's the CEO and one of the founders of Positive Venture Group. We talk about how he transitioned from being a C-level executive to starting his own business and how he manages his company's rapid growth. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Jason Burke, founder and CEO of Positive Venture Group, and I'm very happy to be on the Ottawa Entrepreneurs Podcast today. Thanks for coming on the show, Jason. Appreciate it. Uh, pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Positive Venture Group and, and a bit about your background? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I think uh, a Positive Venture Group, uh, we started the company, uh, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Jeff, and I started the company about four years ago. Um, so my background is I've been a finance professional for years. Um, I've been a chief financial officer. Um, I became chief financial officer of Cognos when IBM acquired Cognos. I uh, left there after two years as the chief financial officer of the business analytics division within IBM. Went down to Boston, spent some time with a company called Avid Technologies, running their finance organization. Uh, after two and a half years commuting, came back, worked with a company called MossAid. We rebranded Conversant, uh, that again, as chief finance and then chief operating officer. Uh, when I left there, um, uh, they always say that uh, that authors write what they know. Um, so I decided that I would uh, I wanted to uh, sow my entrepreneurial uh, oats and decided to start a company um, with kind of the background that I've learned from best practices running large finance organizations. So created Positive Venture Group. The idea was how can we take these best practices that you have at the enterprise level and apply them to growth stage technology companies. How do you turn that 90% of tech companies fail, invert that and try to make 90% that work with us be successful? Um, and we really, like uh, Jeff and I really believed that the way that we would approach that is by bringing that that discipline to the finance function and uh, and kind of enabling these companies to access the capital that they need to be successful. So uh, when we talked about what Positive uh, Venture Group uh, was going to do, we said, okay, well, what are the main pitfalls we see with all the tech companies uh, in Ottawa and beyond? Um, and they normally fall, fall down because of three main pitfalls. Uh, the first one is that access to capital. Second one is linking their strategy to their execution. Mm -hmm. And then finally, it's this, uh, everything in around financial and regulatory matters that become a complete distraction for the owner manager when it comes to tr what they really want to do, which is build a great product or service and deliver that to their customers. Um, so that's where the finance function fits in. So we decided that we'd be virtual CFOs, yeah. create a network of virtual CFOs, and we'd solve the problems of the world that way. But then we realized that there was a whole lot of other problems in the world. <laughs> uh, Isn't that always the way? Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, so we uh, we realized that they they needed help with marketing. They needed help with some of these other areas. So we we kind of leveraged our network from the Cognos, uh, Cognoses, Avids, other places we've been over time, and created a network of professionals that we could bring to bear in different disciplines. Um, but more so, we realized that really the problem wasn't just at the CFO level with these companies. They needed help with the whole finance function. The solutions that were out there with uh, with bookkeeping and the the the, uh, the systems with uh, kind of uh, QuickBooks or Zero or Wave weren't sophisticated enough to help companies that have these huge ambitions. 
Um, they're good enough for a company that's just a small company that's going to stay a small company. But if you want to become the next 10 million, 100 million, billion dollar company, you're going to go through a long, long period of scaling and a whole lot of changes that need to happen in that period. And if you're not built off a stable platform from day one that grows with you and kind of allows you to scale, you're not going to be successful. So I looked back at our experience, again, taking that author um, uh, uh, mode and kind of writing what I know. And when I was in these large finance organizations, we had a, a finance function that included accounts payable, accounts receivable, payroll, financial information systems, FP&A, assistant controllers, controllers, tax, treasury. Mm -hmm. uh, we enabled this with world-class ERP systems, financial planning and analysis systems. And we uh, also benefited from an economy of scale because not all those roles cost the same. So you had the right, peop uh, right people doing the right role for the right price, which allowed you to price your, uh, your, your finance function would cost half a uh, percentage of re your revenue or up to 1% of revenue as a best practice. Well, most growth stage companies are spending between three and 8% of their revenues or much more than that on their finance function. And normally the measure is actually as a percentage of your expenses, because okay. a lot of them are losing money uh, right. in the early right. stage, uh, but they're still spending a far higher percentage than they should be on the finance function. So we said, okay, well, these guys can't afford to build that great, uh, that, that great package that we had in large organizations. So we're gonna build it for them. And then we're gonna license that to them. So this became finance as a service, the, the term that we, uh, that we coined. And uh, it's funny, PwC in their benchmarking report recently just called this out as a, a major trend that, that growth stage companies should be thinking about and looking at, which is, uh, which is obviously helpful in terms of our marketing. Sure. Um, but the idea of finance as a service is taking uh, cloud-based software as a service targeted at finance building the finance function and then kind of licensing that out to folks so that they're getting the benefit of a large organization. So we've got 50 people in our finance function now. It's grown quite uh, quite dramatically. Uh, we partnered with NetSuite. We were just named the uh, NetSuite uh, um, Breakout Business Process wow. Outsource Partner of the Year at Sweet World down in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Las Vegas. And we've partnered with a company called Profix out of Toronto that uh, is our FP&A solution, fully integrated with NetSuite. So now for the first time ever at a cost that is less than the cost of hiring a controller in-house, growth stage companies can now benefit from a full enterprise scale finance function at their disposal. And the idea is, we're going to remove distraction by doing that so that the founders and the and the uh, the salespeople and the marketing people mm -hmm. and the product can people do what they do best. can focus on what right. they do best. Right. Exactly right. Now, Jason, will they need to have a finance person in place to understand all of the different services that you're, and products that you're offering them? So the answer is uh, it can we 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 do it in both ways. Okay. So when they have a finance uh, person in place, what we do is we partner with that person and empower that person. So basically, they become the link to the business. So they're the one talking to the uh, the the CEO. They're the one talking to the um, to the mar chief marketing officer. They're the one mm -hmm. talking to all those different functions, and they become the business partner role, uh, which is highly valuable. That's what all finance people actually aspire to be, right? right? right. So it actually empowers that person so they had a really interesting unique experience but they have all the information they need in a fashion that they can manage from our team behind them I uh, but we can also fill that role ourselves um, if they don't have that person in place where they just basically work with us directly on the finance function side
So did you, uh, you started the conversation by telling a little bit about where you're going and, and how you got there, but you mentioned flexing your entrepreneurial muscle or a comment like that. Is this something that's always, you've, you know, you've been a C-level guy for, yeah. for, for a large publicly traded company. Uh, how did you transition from that to, hey, I want to start my own business? Yeah. And maybe I'll ask you a question. Sure. What would you say is the average age of an entrepreneur? Somebody who starts their own business. I don't know the answer. You asked me to guess based on all of the podcasts yeah. that I've done, probably mid to late 40s. It's 50, uh, 50 to 54 okay. is the is the most wow. common age where people start their own business. And it's it's kind of funny because everyone has this picture in their head of the Mark young, Zuckerberg, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Or Steve Jobs <laughs> right, when right. he first started Apple, right. right? These young guys. And those are a very, very small fraction of those folks that are entrepreneurs. A lot of the folks who are actually entrepreneurs have had their career already. I, I talk about my father-in-law. He started it almost his company almost the same time in his life that I've started mine. And it's a much more common story. Mm -hmm. And it's really this idea that you've learned a lot in your career and you're ready to now say, you know what? I'm going to make a bet on me mm -hmm. and I've, I've worked for others for a long enough time. Yeah. I'm ready to try something on my own. So it's funny that you, you see that now. One of the reasons I ended up leaving IBM, though, was because it wasn't an entrepreneurial enough culture. Mm. When I was within Cognos, Cognos was a very entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial culture. So even though you're not the entrepreneur, you can have a culture that fits that way. As the company gets bigger and bigger, and a lot of government employees will agree with this, and mm. uh, people who work with <laughs> within IBMs of the world and other large organizations, it's hard to maintain that entrepreneurial culture, that culture of ownership where everybody is treating their day-to-day yeah. Like they own the business so that they're taking that sort of ownership in terms of what they need to do. Um, because if if everyone else can say no to the things that you're going to do, you don't have an entrepreneurial culture. Yeah. So I've always had that as something that's a core element. So when we set up the company uh, and kind of moved it forward, it was really with that in mind that we wanted to have that, create that culture so that folks can really have that freedom to feel like they own own part of positive. So are you are you uh, are you setting up your business? Like you've grown fast in a short period of time. What safeguards are you putting in place so that you don't end up, you know, being like a like a like a, like a large corporation where it does not have that entrepreneurial spirit within the organization? Because you've got to manage that, right? If you're, I find if you're twenty people or less, it's entrepreneurial by nature typically. Yeah. But I find um, once you get past that kind of twenty, because I've been involved with companies that were that size for a long time, got bought out. And all of a sudden, we're a hundred-person company, and the whole dynamic changed. Yeah. It was not entrepreneur at all. Yeah. So, are you putting any kind of system? Like, you, you got to be mindful of that as you grow your own business, correct? I, I, absolutely right. And uh, when uh, it comes right down, we've actually uh, put that right into our core, core values. So, and we've kind of coined it in a way that it actually is targeted towards kind of not only our business but our clients' business. And it's own my clients' business like my own is one of our core values. And one of our clients is positive. Um, so we are, we, we're, we're the classic, uh, example of, uh, drinking our own champagne, yeah. some days eating our own dog food, yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I know that's but, like... uh, it's, but we, we, we do it in house as well. So this idea of ownership is implied right into our core values. Okay. Um, we ought, we, we do leverage stock options so that all the employees feel like they are an owner in this organization. We do explain that and we do foster an entrepreneurial culture within it so that we want people to, um, do and apologize later, um, mm -hmm. to have, feel like they have the flexibility so they don't always have to ask permission to get something done. Because if we've hired smart people 
And if we've, if we've trained them appropriately and we put them in the right position, why would we want to hold them back from doing what they can do? Because ultimately um, that will keep them from, uh, from achieving what our mission is. And a positive, we declared our mission right from day one is to help our clients and our people reach their full potential. Right. Um, so again, it's, it's all tied to this kind of hmm. culture of entrepreneurship that we want to have within our team. And and when you and your partner started the business, Jason, was it just the two of you or, or right away did you have like you got a contract, a couple of contracts that you had to hire people or was it literally the two of you just getting going? Yeah, we started with it. It was actually three of us originally that started it. Um, that, and uh, But it, it was really this idea of uh, it started with this idea of a network of CFOs. Mm. Um, and so it was uh, three folks who could act as CFOs and work on that basis. Um, and then we were going to build that network over time and kind of do it in a way that we built a CFO process. So we set a very high standard for this is what a positive CFO does. And we we're going to kind of build that network over time. We now have 10 to 12 CFOs all working on different, uh, different clients right now across our client base. Um, but it's we've taken the focus away from just being that CFO shop. Gotcha. Now we partner with a lot of CFO organizations and other virtual CFOs because what we've built in terms of finance as a service gives leverage to any CFO who happens to be out there working with these companies. So mm-hmm. um, we've designed it very selfishly to help us, but because we of that, it also helps all these other CFOs who don't necessarily have to be part of what we do. Um, so it started with that, and then we started building out the uh, the rest of the team from there. And did you did you always? I know you started this initially with that kind of technology focus. Is can a, a business that's not in the tech sector can they take advantage of of the products and services that you have? Absolutely. the uh, The common theme is a high growth business. Okay. Um, because, uh, if, if you're not growing and if, if, if it's the same thing from month to month, there are more affordable things, uh, more affordable options out there, like a, a bookkeeping service. Cause then once it's set up, it's just kind of a matter of repeating it. A company that's growing is facing new things all the time, mm-hmm. needs to be able to grow, needs to be able to transcend where they were a month ago. They need to be able to kind of adjust on the fly. That's where we come in and that's where we can help the most. But that doesn't only happen in tech. Our business is a perfect example. We're a services business going, growing quickly. We have other services businesses that we work with that are growing quickly. We've got manufacturing companies that are that are growing quickly. We've got um, uh, now in this day and age, we've got some cannabis companies mm. that are growing quickly that are clients of ours. Um, so really we say that it's companies in transition that we can help the most. And the most common transition that we work with is growth. Is there is there a percentage of growth that you're looking for? Like, because growth can be defined. You know, there are some entrepreneurs that be happy with one percent growth yeah. month over month, right? Yeah. And there's others that are going to be happy with not happy with that. So, from your perspective, to take on a client, is there is there almost a uh, a pre-qualifier. So for the smaller companies, yeah. for for the growth stage companies, so uh, we we can work with companies uh, like our fo- our target is anybody who's kind of at the the five hundred thousand dollars of revenue, but have got some seed funding in mm-hmm. place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they're ready to kind of start that real kind of scale up trend, yeah. right up to like fifty million dollars okay. is kind gotcha. of where we can where we add the most value. Yeah. Um, and the growth rate will decline as you of go course. up that that spectrum. So if you're a ten million company a dollar company growing at um one to two percent then you're likely looking for efficiencies ways to save cost and make things more affordable 
we can fit very well in that model from okay. the kind of 10 million and up. For the growth stage companies, it's really dealing with all the different things and helping to fund the growth of the business and do the things that we do very well that kind of plugs in there uh, as they go through. Now we've got some companies who go from uh, from that 1 million to 50 million very, very quickly. Um, and then they start thinking about a graduation into um, into bringing their, uh, their service in-house. And do you provide, uh, you and I have very similar business models. Yes. It's fascinating, yeah. mine on the marketing side. Absolutely. But do you provide the training to try to get, you know, get them to that point where they can bring it in-house? Absolutely. So, yeah. so, we, uh, so, so we do a full onboarding yeah. uh, when we first start working with a company and then we do a full offboarding when it comes time to migrate to their own in-house yeah. uh, team. It's funny, I, I always say though, um, I, we have this kind of 50 million kind of dollar uh, threshold where we feel companies start... It's not a true threshold. What mm. really happens is these companies are in a B or C round. And normally that investor who's coming in, who hasn't seen anything else, feels like it needs to be brought in house at yeah. that point yeah. in time. It's funny when you get up to the size of Cognos, IBM and others, you start outsourcing again because yeah. you're looking for that efficiency right, and you right, realize right. there's a better model. Yeah. Um, so I think over time, we, will, they come, will, they, will they come back around, do you think, over time potentially? Well, they could come back to us yeah, or, I mean. or somebody like us. Yeah, interesting. Um, but I more think that that 50 million will be pushed out more and more as people start realizing this and become more comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. That's why we've partnered with the technology partners. Uh, NetSuite is a fantastic example. You think about the Ottawa area and uh, companies like Canopy and Shopify and, and other large companies are all on NetSuite. So the company, when we put them on NetSuite at 500,000 or a uh, million dollars of revenue, they could scale into the billions and billions without ever having to switch their uh, finance system. Yeah. When I was with Cognos, we switched four or five times over the over ten years uh, while we were using kind of uh, Oracle and other systems. Hmm. So um, it's a it's kind of a different world with cloud technology because it's always upgraded for you, and as long as you kind of follow that upgrade, it's a really interesting path. So we built enterprise scale systems that billion dollar companies okay. are being run on, and we're offering that to growth stage companies so that they never have to switch. Even if they graduate, it's a really easy graduation for them to take over the license. It's a great idea. Makes perfect sense. What um, uh, what were the what were kind of the, your two or three biggest challenges you faced being uh, going from being a C level person to being an entrepreneur? And I'm asking this question. You and I talked a bit before we went live uh, this morning about the types of people that are listening to this podcast. Yeah. It's everything from experienced entrepreneurs that may be struggling a little bit uh, to people considering starting a business and and kind of everything in between. So it's a question I ask of everyone. Was there two or three things that jumped out at you that you weren't necessarily prepared for? Yeah, and I'll kind of go back to those three things that I call out as those three main pitfalls yeah. that, uh, that companies fall into. Yeah. Um, so first is access to capital, right? Okay. So uh, we're a services business, we're a bootstrapped business, but then when we really started kind of getting traction, um, it was hard to keep up to the growth because you do have to have the people in place right. before you sign the revenue contracts. And uh, so we needed to find a funding partner similar mm. to everybody else. So we partnered up with BDC, we got some capital in the door and we've now been able to grow our team and grow our business more quickly because of accessing that capital. So always being aware of your cash flow, always being aware of what you can afford to invest in, not being overly ambitious that this revenue is going to be there. So getting way out ahead of your skis, yeah. but managing that appropriately so that you actually are kind of financing the business to the stage of the accurate stage of growth. We've worked with companies who, who have closed an incredible first financing round at a valuation that's way higher mm. than most people do and they brought in more money than most people do. What happens to those guys? 
They burn through that money and they're ready for the next round. It's not and available. It, and it's not available right. because the valuation has been set too high. And the people who have been there before, who, who, they're they're, not, they're, they're not going lower. they don't want to get no, diluted like crazy right, all of right. a sudden into this new round yeah. because it takes time. So be pragmatic about your approach to growth. That doesn't mean you kind of cut your... Uh, your estimates or understanding uh, or your 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 uh, ambition for growth down, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but be pragmatic about your approach yeah. to growth and fund the business according to the way that you that makes sense. And there is a a standard funding formula that uh, that we work with our clients on. Um, the second one is the linking strategy to execution in terms of the pitfalls. And the biggest challenge I had personally as an entrepreneur is that switch from working for your business to working on your business. Mm-hmm. And that's something that most entrepreneurs have a really hard time with time. Um, because you start the business as the person doing, doing, and that doesn't matter if you're, uh, if you're, if you're in construction, if you're in programming, if you're in anything else, you start as a doer. Yeah. Um, and then you have to shift from that doer to being the person people that that's kind of the visionary, the spokesperson, mm-hmm. the leader, mm-hmm. the, uh, the manager. Yeah. Um, and that transition is something that's very, very difficult. Uh, from a number of different, uh, one, it's uh, different skill sets. So some people just don't have that and need to develop it. Um, but more so, um, you end up working with clients and those clients expect you to work with them. So having to bring in somebody else underneath you to take over a client relationship is hard. We've got clients who have been with, with us for four years. And they probably expect you because you brought them on board, right? Yeah. yeah, Your business is past that. You got 40 people. You're, you're busy CEO at this stage, right? Yeah. And, and, and actually being able to message the value of, positive being much more than the value of Jason Burke or Jeff right. Stoss, right? right? Like right. the value of positive is it, like the uh, systems, it's the technology, the systems, it's, the right. technology, the yeah. people doing the right piece of work. Like, and when I explain it to people, they get it. They say, when I say, well, you don't need my fingers on your model, right? They'll mm-hmm. say, no, I, anyone can do that, but I want you yeah. um, to, to be here for me. And it's kind of like, well, there are better people than me to do yeah, this yeah, and being yeah. able to kind of convey that is is a challenge and a, a tough shift for anybody. So uh, in, there's a lot of other elements to, uh, to kind of linking that strategy to execution of where you want to go and being able to actually do it. But for the entrepreneurs themselves, I think the biggest part is when you're ready to be really successful, you've got to get out of doing the, the business and you have to get into leading the business. Yeah. You got to shift from uh, working for the business to working on the business. And if you don't do it thoughtfully and in a focused manner, you'll never be successful on that front. Did you ever uh, read the book, The E-Myth, uh, E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber? No. The, he's the one who was written in the mid-80s. He's the one that started the whole trend of working on. He coined the term working on, not in your business. Oh, awesome. And uh, that book is timeless. Like yeah. even though it was 85 – Okay. <laughs> <Even though, laughs> sorry about the phone going there, guys. If you can hear it on the podcast, <laughs> um, even though it was written in the mid '80s, it's still applicable. Yeah. And, and I became, I, I got so into that book that I actually went down to Portland, Oregon, took the training to be an e-myth coach. Yeah. Not that I wanted to be an, I just wanted to fully understand the 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 processes yeah. and the systems. And it's fat. It's a study unto itself. But um, you know, anytime I'm doing any kind of coaching with any of our clients. I find a lot of times the founder is the greatest asset and the greatest liability all rolled into one. Yeah, absolutely. Right? That there, I, I agree with you 100. Um, and and another way to put it is that the that the founder can be the thing that keeps the company from reaching its full right, potential. And right. that's I, I'm I'm very committed to yeah, not yeah. being that that yeah. person in terms of my business. And uh, any any founder entrepreneur needs to 
be self-aware mm-hmm. of where their limitations are and then build a team that helps kind of make them more than just what they can be on their own. Yeah. If you have to be the, the answer to every question, then you're never going to scale. Uh, you need to have a team that's uh, that's built around you and mm-hmm. starts with your leadership team, but mm-hmm. then it goes right through the business, right? Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that uh, that you touched on in it's kind of comes down to uh, again linking strategy execution is adopting a management met- methodology and philosophy. Um, so there's a lot of them out there, uh, whether you, you're, you're a follower of balanced scorecards, mm-hmm. um, whether you're, uh, trickle down, uh, tr- trickle down goals and objectives. Um, we adopted the traction methodology, which yeah, we, good. we really like, yeah. um, and it's a way to focus our business. It's great for where we're at right now. They're adopting something and sticking to it for any entrepreneurship is something that's really important mm-hmm. to make sure that you're actually executing in line with all the things that you're saying yeah. you're going to do. I want to bring it back to something you mentioned earlier. Interesting, you said one of the greatest challenges is, um, um, you know, a business that may be overvalued. Jason, when you have a client or prospect that comes to you and you know they're overvalued based on your experience, are you is the relationship set up in such a way that is 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 it your job to tell them that or or is or to at least say, hey, listen, you're overvalued by X. Uh, We have to be careful of that for the next round, or or that's not really your role. Uh, no, absolutely, it's my role. Is it okay? Uh, and, and, okay. Well, my role. That, that's or, a tough conversation. C- that's a, a tough conversation to have, isn't it? To have that conversation, and okay. it is a very tough conversation yeah, to have. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, uh, oftentimes it ends up with the proof being in the pudding for it to, yeah. to for it to be fully realized. Um, so, what what I've seen in the past is that. Um, Founders can are are often great at selling their business, selling their vision, and especially with friends and family and people close to them, right? Yeah. So there and end up being able to sell, and this is kind of kind of one of the downfalls is you sell it to people who are close to you, who are really investing in you, right? And then all of a sudden you expect somebody who's completely objective to come in and be looking at things with the same value lens. Um, and it doesn't always work out that well. Um, so you're able to raise that first round at a value that you may never be able to get uh, for, for a number of other years. Now, there's other mechanisms. So when we're talking about uh, different fund uh, fundraise, like, there's not just uh, equity funding on a, on a priced round. Um, and don't mean to get uh, overly uh, technical in fundraising, but you can do convertible debentures. You can do mm. uh, simple agreements for equity, a safe. Uh, you can do, there is access to government non-dilutive funding. There are more debt um, offerings than there have ever been uh, for uh, for technology companies and other companies to fund their business. So there are other abilities to kind of fill that gap until you close that value gap over time. So that's the conversation that we work with with a lot of our uh, of our, our founder CEOs is, listen, unless you're willing to be diluted from that last round, which means you got to get board approval and shareholder approval to, to agree to that, mm-hmm. then you got to find another way to fund the business. And then we kind of start talking about all the different mechanisms that might be at their disposal to uh, to close that value gap over time. Okay. Um, b- before we, uh, we're almost out of time here, but yeah. before we went live, uh, we talked a little bit about some of the work you're doing in the community. Yeah. Do you want to share that with our listeners? Sure, absolutely. So I, I'm on the board of uh, the, the uh, Ingenium Foundation. So Ingenium is a corporation 
that is kind of that is the uh, the the the, um, the parent corporation for uh, three of the museums here in town: the Science and Tech Museum, the Aviation Museum, the Agriculture and Food Museum. So all of the kind of innovation-based museums, Ingenium as the parent corporation has a mandate to encourage STEAM, uh, science, tech, engineering, mm -hmm. and math, with a focus uh, obviously on some of the areas where that's not as broadly adopted, which is in kind of um, uh, with uh, with uh, with young women. Uh, with uh, with the native community and some of the other areas of the population where it's not as um, not as common for people to follow that steam type of uh, uh, of uh, career path. Um, so being on the foundation, encouraging fundraising associated with encouraging people into those regards. It's really a focus. Uh, um, the, uh, the the prime minister has said that we need to be far more innovative. Canada, is, it, to, for it to be successful, we've got to become far more innovative. And that means we need to bring all of our best people into that STEAM type environment, that science, tech, engineering, math, to, become, to bring that innovation. And that's innovation not only just from the point of view of I'm building software, but innovation from the point of view of let's do energy better. Mm. Um, which is a really kind of pronounced one within Canada, and there's a focus on energy. Uh, let's do um, uh, let let's do some of our um, uh, kind of like even uh, to our mining industries, our fishery industries, our forestry industries, all the different things that have made Canada what it is in terms of our industries. How can we do all of that better and more in a more innovative fashion so that we uh, help uh, some of the major mandates right now, the economy of Canada. Uh, the um, uh, slow down the, um, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera, et cetera. All of that comes from having the best minds possible in STEAM. Um, so that's something that we're uh, pretty passionate about. It's a nationwide uh, foundation, nationwide. I've never even heard of it, but as soon as you explain it, I go, yeah. oh my God, of course we need this. So, so, so the, the, it came out of, it's, it's funny because of where it came out of. It came hmm. out of the museums, right? But where do you celebrate innovation over time? Like people have yeah. been going to the Science and Tech Museum. It's right up the road here, close to where we're at. Yeah. Um, and people have been going there forever. And that's inspired youth forever about wanting to be an inventor, wanting to be an innovator, right? So it's uh, it's kind of the uh, the foundation that I found myself involved with hmm. uh, a little while ago. Really excited about some of the things that are happening in that front. Uh, great new museum for people to visit and yeah. become uh, inspired and bring your kids to. Um, and I think it's a, a great mandate for uh, for people to be uh, to look at so if uh that's uh one of the one of the causes that's uh close to my heart and that uh nice. that we're pretty involved with where can our listeners find out more about uh, positive venture group uh www.positiveventuregroup.com um and we'll also be sharing more and more we also have our uh our uh linkedin page or facebook page etc so there's a there's a lot of aspect there and if there's uh, a lot of uh good information um we will continue to be producing more and more uh for that site um and there's a lot of uh opportunity for uh for reaching out to reaching out to us through the uh the website or social media great Thanks, Jason. Appreciate your time for, for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate Thanks. this.